Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure uh, to welcome David Willits, MP, um, the Shadow Minister for Universities and Skills. He also has special responsibility for family policy. David has been member for Haven't in Hampshire uh, since 1992. He's worked at the Treasury, at the Number 10 Policy Unit, uh, the Centre for Policy Studies, of which he was a, di a director and where I first uh, met him, and as Paymaster General in the last Conservative Government. Uh, he has also been Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and amongst many, many other things. I won't give you the whole list, but he's a visiting fellow of Nuffield College, Oxford, a member of the Council of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, and a visiting professor at Cass Business School. Uh, David has written very widely, as many of you will be aware, on economic and social policy, including his book on, uh, on modern conservatism, in which he elaborated his idea of civic conservatism, which urges a revaluation of the, of the role of intermediate social actors, uh, such as uh, voluntary organizations, the local groups, not as a, a pretext for dismantling the state, uh, but for attending to the many things which the state tends not to do very well. Uh, he's also done a lot of work in the ways in which the welfare system interacts with society at large and with the least advantaged groups in particular. Now, we've been pleased to host David many times in recent years at LSE. Uh, I particularly have, have particularly good uh, memories of a very compelling talk he gave on the relation between philosophy and politics a couple of years ago, with plenty of telling illustrations from current policy dilemmas. Now, for all his formidably cerebral reputation, which precedes him, uh, David firmly believes in grounding theory uh, on solid practice and on empirical analysis, as I know we're about to hear this evening. So, well, David, we've been hearing all the scary stuff about demographic time bombs and how we're going to pay for our old people and so on. Um, so we want to hear from you if it's really as bad as it sounds, or does it all depend on where you live? Should we be thinking quickly about getting the hell out of wherever we are and moving to another country? Um, I think you might be able to give us a few pointers, useful pointers in that direction, and we're very much looking forward to what you have to say. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much indeed, Morris. It's a great pleasure to be here. Now, I'm just going to... Is this... How am I going to move for the... Where's the controls for... Oh, right, let's see if we're going to... I want to show the slides. Wait, how do I move on to the next... I'll get on to the next one. I think if you just go to... Sorry. Any uh, IT experts here? Uh, Chat? Does, does, it, does it require expertise? When you said oh, press the button... Sorry, here we are. Yes, press which the button. button. Which button would you like me to... I think you'd better press the button first. Sorry? If you, if you, if you could just... Slides hmm? They should have been loaded on unless we emailed them. Are they in the system? Yeah. Which one? Yep. Yeah. Right. Oh. There we are. Now, which angle? So now, we're which one do you want me to operate it from? Go to the next slide. 
slide one. Yeah, slide. Right. Europe's demographic challenge. Can Europe play its way? Ah, oh, brilliant. Um, well, it's a great pleasure to be here. We've now set the ball rolling with the kind of figures that I suspect you will all be familiar with and which uh, we have uh, which give rise to classic kind of fears that Morris was describing uh, and these come and as do most of my figures in the presentation tonight from the European Commission's most recent report on uh, the long-term patterns of European global ageing came out earlier this year. So these are many of them official European figures. It's ECOFIN that tends to do them, because ECOFIN, France, know how big an economy is going to be behind the euro. Uh, and that's the main source. Though there's, uh, some figures also come from experts who are present in this room tonight. Uh, if I, the pattern, what we've got here, is the baby boomers, first of all, get, grow older, so we've got this sharp rise in the uh, number of over 65s in the period 2015 to 2035. And then they die, and as they die out, so Europe, Europe's population starts falling in absolute terms, uh, having peaked in 2035. So that's quite a... Those are the kind of figures that people will be familiar with. And you may also be familiar especially if you go to America, every American airport bookshop has got almost now an entire section which is essentially a European declinist literature. And I've chosen some of the titles. Uh, but there is a... And it's quite a standard model in the US about what's supposed to be happening in Europe. And it's essentially a combination of low birth rates and Muslims taking over. That's essentially what you have. And... Um, I could add many more to this list, but breeding bin Ladens is a good example of the genre. It's even got the flavour, and the Muslims are going to be militant and threatening. Um, the, uh, Christopher Caldwell has written one of the more sophisticated examples of the genre recently. It's also uh, not simply uh, an American, Americans looking at us. The, the uh, Alessina and Giovanni book comes from, uh, was written, I think, based in London. Bernard Spitz in France, uh, the, the, the Baby Bust is an example of the genre. And it's not the first time round. That famous quote, old people in old houses with old ideas, is a 1930s quote, when Europe was last in a state of anxiety about depopulation um, and population decline. Uh, and just as a as a sort of corrective, just so that, just to remind us that we get these things wrong. Uh, again, a quote from John Maynard Keynes, who was very worried about depopulation at the time that he was writing the general theory. In fact, depopulation was a key part of his model. G John Maynard Keynes in 1937, we know much more securely than we know almost any other social or economic factor relating to the future that in the place of the steady and indeed steeply rising level of population which we've experienced for a great number of decades, we should be faced in a very short time with a stationary or a declining level. And of course, within 10 years, the baby boom began. So one can get these things wrong, and you have to be careful and suitably cautious. 
but having said that, there are some very strong demographic trends. And if anything like those trends that I showed you in the first slide carry on, we've got a big economic impact from them. Uh, obviously, with what's happening with population aging and then the population shrinking, you get a fall in your working age population. Um, having peaked quite soon, Europe's working age population is forecast. And this is, this is I mean, one, one mustn't be immune to the drama of this. We're going to lose 50 million workers overall across Europe in the next 50 years on the Europe's own forecast. And we are, have reached the stage where economic growth in Europe will be entirely driven by productivity improvements offsetting the effects of a shrinkage of the workforce. This is a very unusual, perhaps unprecedented, economic experiment for an advanced economy, where your labour force does not grow, but your economic growth therefore comes solely from productivity. Um, and as I say, and I keep on repeating it, the, this is, the, this is uh, the EU's own long-term forecast produced this year. So there's an economic uh, impact on growth, there's also an economic impact on the budget. Uh, so if you assume public policy commitments remain stable, you don't change uh, your policies on the value of your pension or change your policies on the health service, you just feed in changing demographics to a stable policy environment. This is what you get for changes in public spending as a percentage of GDP in major EU countries. So what this is telling you is that the, the fisc we are facing fiscal headwinds. Doing nothing in the next 50 years is for leading European economies, including Germany and the UK, 5%, five percentage points extra on public spending as a percentage of GDP. Again, very different from the fiscal environment we've been in for the past few decades. Now, these changes are not evenly distributed across Europe. There are different ways in which you can slice and dice it. Uh, essentially, the demographics of Northern and Western Europe look much more favorable than the demographics of Southern and Eastern Europe. Uh, and this, which is a rather neat little chart I've taken from a, a book by Lutz and Wilson, captures it quite neatly. They just take women uh, age 30 to 39, how many kids they have. And you can see that in the northern seven, the birth rate is significantly higher than in the southern four. And the microanalysis doesn't stop there. You can get in even more micro than that because, of course, uh, people do concentrate with people of their same age. You can have dynamic, vibrant, youthful cities in nation states which are growing older. And indeed, uh, and inequally, in an economy where the population is growing, like the US, you can have parts where the population is shrinking or aging and other parts where, there, where it's useful. And what is striking about the US, and I think they're much more aware of it than we are in Europe, is the role, for example, of the, of the university in driving demographic competition between states. One of the reasons why states back universities and they want universities to expand and encourage people to go to university is universities are a bit sticky. 10% or so of people going to university will stick in the area of the university where they've studied. So it's a form of demographic competition behind, between the US 
US states. Um, so the distribution of people is not even, and we can, uh, but our starting point here is a clear shift towards the north and west and away from the south and east. Um, within the nation states of Europe, we've also got some big changes going on in the, in the sort of relative size of the nation states. France's birth rate has in the past few years overtaken Germany's birth rate for the first time in recorded European demographic history. And with Germany's population falling and with France's population growing, uh, by in the next 50 years it is forecast that France will be more populous than Germany. Uh, and even more extraordinary on these forecasts, Britain becomes significantly more populous than either of them. And this is a combination, a forecast change, and this is the EU feeding in essentially the kind of figures of the first decade of the century and assuming they continue. So this is assuming with Britain quite a high birth rate, about 1.85, 1.9, and quite a high continuing rate of net immigration, something more than 100,000 a year. But on this, mo on this forecast, Britain, as you can see, it's a population of 77 million. And I think even more interesting in a way, our working age population grows and overtakes the uh, Germany or France. And on Europe's employment forecast, unless our GDP, unless our output per person in work falls catastrophically behind uh, other leading European economies, we must expect at some point in the 2040s to become Europe's largest economy. So there's a big shift in the, in the composition, in the relative economic weights um, of Europe, with, I would say, France and the UK, the two growing, uh, the two economies that seem to have the most favorable demographics. Now, I mentioned at the beginning the very fraught issue of, well, where does this population growth come from? What do we know about these people? And in particular, is there an issue about the Muslim population as a proportion of the total? Very hard to get estimates because these figures are not all collected. These figures come partly from an American think tank and also at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which feeds in what they call network effects, which is once that your immigrant population goes above a certain point, then the networks which enable them to bring in other people themselves drive a continuation of that immigration rate. Uh, the UK figure comes from, I think, a paper that David Coleman showed to me and um, is a significantly lower estimate. But you can see the kind of change that you've got in, in France or Germany for the Muslim population is no more dramatic than the US has got for its Hispanic population. And the question is whether behind this debate and it's uh, delicate territory, and I should try to enter it as neutrally as I can, whether behind this debate there are assumptions about ability to absorb people from some cultures into the host culture more easily than others. Now, some of that is uh, based on stereotypes that one uh, are not necessarily legitimate, but there are also questions about family structures and family uh, and patterns of marriage which I think are legitimate. Uh, and perhaps the great French thinker Emmanuel Todd is the 
is the leading expert who gets one to think about family structures and what family structures mean for political and economic systems. Um, and the next slide, which is a small study that David Coleman drew to my attention, the next slide suggests, gives an example of what the integration challenge could be. It's a very small sample of 70 Pakistani families. Um, but the figures for the percentages are not unlike the rates which we are familiar with from parts of the Muslim world. Emmanuel Todd, in his writings, says that something like 50% of marriages in Pakistan are to first cousins. In Saudi Arabia, about 36% of marriages are to first cousins. And what Todd argues is societies with that uh, social structure tend to have different economic and political arrangements than societies with other family structures. He, um, he essentially takes family structure as one of the key drivers of social and political structures. Uh, and in a way, although we love that, those three words, egalite, uh, fraternite, liberté, in some ways what Todd argues is it's quite hard to link fraternity with equality and liberty. The question is whether fraternity as a model whereby your society functions is one which lends itself, is easy to reconcile with liberty and equality. But certainly in this model where you don't have exogamous marriages, where people don't look out of the family for their marriage partners but marry within the extended family. Um, now, there are, this then raises very, again, more delicate questions about whether you can or should try to raise the birth rate. One uh, pamphlet that I wrote on this subject, just really about European demographics a few years ago, and the BBC reported on their website, they helpfully put a photograph of Mussolini alongside their report of my paper. Um, and fascist pronatalism, and the pronatalism of... Uh, of Italy and Germany and Japan in the 1930s, and it's very worrying that it was a clearly a shared phenomenon amongst the, the leading 1930s dictatorship, has give, uh, given the whole subject um, the quite most quite appalling associations. And for a long time in Europe, it was a forbidden subject. In the last 10 or 15 years, there have started being sort of respectable papers from the OECD and the EU about the subject. And our starting point course has to be very simple, which is what matters is what women want. You cannot, it's not, um, the argument is not women ought to have more children for the sake of the fatherland. The argument, the modern argument has become, have we got a set of economic and social arrangements which impede people from having the number of children that they stay, say at the start of their adult lives they would wish to have? Um, that I think is the is the only acceptable way of putting the question. And there is some evidence of eventual number of children that people have falling significantly short of the number that they report in advance in their early 20s they expect or wish to have. So that's the challenge. Now, um, the classic solution, and we see it a lot in the press nowadays, and they, they do it in Latvia, they've done it, tried it in Lithuania, various countries, um, 5,000 euros if you have a baby. Not the world's most sophisticated economic policy intervention, but they try some of it. 
Um, and by and large, I think the view amongst the experts is that so, such bribes don't seem to have much effect on the overall birth rate. They may bring forward, they may change the timing of the birth rate, though it is worth saying that we sit in Britain and rather smugly sort of mock these vulgar pro-natalist initiatives on the continent. Uh, one of the most striking effects that has been identified is it does look as if um, some researchers at Bristol have shown it does look as if the levels of payment for children in tax credits, which were designed as a child poverty measure, not a pro-natalist measure, but they estimate that they're one of the factors behind the surge in the British birth rate of the past few years, perhaps raising our birth rate by up to um, 45,000 of a birth rate that's now heading significantly north of 700, over 750,000. So uh, it looks as if our tax credits may inadvertently have been a pro-natalist policy. And even if, the, even if what you do simply changes the tempo, the tempo matters. The composition of your population will, if you think about it, changes if people all start having their babies younger. It may be, you may well end up with a larger total population, and it will mean that while you're going through the transition, your median age is younger than it was. So even changes in the tempo, they themselves matter. But I'm not a, a great fan of this sort of use the tax benefit system to bribe people to have babies. What I am more interested in is some of the other types of policies that might have an effect. When you look at the, uh, those southern countries with their very low birth rates, um, they, and the contrast with the northern and western Europe with its higher birth rate, again, one of the interesting pieces of evidence is it looks as if economies that enable women in particular to combine work and having children end up doing better by birth rates and the so-called traditional model with lower rates of female participation in the workforce, if anything, also seem to have lower birth rates. So the idea that sort of women should stay at home and have kids, that seems to be exploded by the evidence. If it's anything, it's the other way. Uh, the, women, the societies where women are still more likely to be at home delivering informal care are the ones with lower birth rate. And it seems to be that societies with the more traditional roles for women don't just expect them to have kids, they also expect them to do much more caring for their elderly parents. Indeed, the elderly parents may well be living at home with the younger woman and her partner. And having the in-laws at home appears to be a very powerful contraceptive indeed. So it looks as if the traditional roles for women uh, does not seem to be consistent with high birth rates. And indeed, and there is what you could very crudely call the Italian model, in which you don't really provide uh, much by way of benefits for young people. The main source of benefits is pensions. Pensions are transmitted from older people to younger dependents via the pensioner being resident in the family home with more intergenerational living. That's the Italian model and that's the Japanese model. And they are the two countries with the lowest birth rates and facing the most dramatic demographic decline. So that model in which women are supposed to do a large amount of intergenerational informal care appears to lead to low birth rates. By contrast, flexible labour markets do appear to lead to higher birth rates, Britain and America being good examples, presumably because it's easier to squeeze in some kind of paid work in hours that you choose and between you, you and your partner, if you have a partner, are able between you to work, divide up the work between you. But I would even go further and say more widely, if I was, if I was a continental European politician trying to make the case for supply-side reform, 
they seem to me the, an argument I would appeal to would be a, a, an argument about what it meant for my nation's birth rate. If you look at it Italy, a key feature behind Italy's extraordinarily low birth rate is delayed family formation. The median Italian male is still living with his parents when he's aged 50, which is why when you see... Oh, sorry, 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 not that, not that joke. When he's aged 30, correct, when he's aged 30. Not, yet, not yet, 50. Um, when he's aged 30. And so when... Uh, and that suggests... And that's partly because of the way in which access to housing finance is still very strictly regulated in Italy. So getting started in the housing market, it is more like Britain in the in the 70s when you had to sort of be a person of good character who'd been saving the building society for five years before they might consider you for a mortgage. Maybe we're reverting to that model now, but that's what Italy has always been like. So I would say competition for personal credit in the Italian domestic finance market would be, might enable Italian household formation to happen earlier. In Germany, and they have now done some of these reforms, uh, the German shopping hours meant it would be very hard, it would be, almost, it would be illegal for a German family to earn a couple with kids to function the way almost every to earn a couple with kids functions in London, but doing the shopping at 10 o'clock at night or at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, all those type of arrangements were illegal. The shops were only open at the same time as people were working. So it was quite hard to combine uh, family life and work. So reforming shopping hours seems to me to be quite an important, uh, another example of a potentially pro-natalist policy. And the other kind of policies that need to be considered are um, pension uh, reforms so as to ease costs of pensions, get people contributing for longer, and tackle something which is still, I think, one of the most tiresome confusions in the way we talk about these things, which is often people use pension age and retirement age um, as synonymous. And there are countries where they are synonymous, and the countries with a serious contrib contributory model of the pension, you collect your pension when you retire, and you have to fulfill the retirement condition. The state system mirrors a company pension scheme. You retire from the company and collect your pension. Uh, that was not historically how British state pensions worked in the interwar, year period, in the interwar period. Um, William Beveridge introduced a retirement condition for British pensions in 1948, and in one of the, I think, underappreciated uh, labour market reforms of the 1980s, it never appears in the list of our labour market reforms, but I think it's one of the most significant, we removed the so-called earnings rule that your value of your pension was reduced if you were still in work. So that it is po in Britain, the, pen the age which you collect your state pension, depends simply, it, it, you collect your state pension simply once you reach a certain age. There is no retirement condition attached to it. And people don't realise how unusual that is amongst advanced Western countries. So you can combine collecting a pension with working, which is why even now at the bottom of a recession, I mean, this is a separate story for another day, uh, what we have now in Britain at the bottom of this recession is employment of over 50s at a record high and employment of under 25s at a record low. There is a mass shift going on in the composition of the workforce, with a workforce with pensioner, pensioner workers now exceeding under 25 workers. Um, behind that, there is a question, of course, about what these older people are going to do. And this statistic, which is carefully ambiguous, tells us both something about voting behaviour, that older people vote for higher benefits, and also something about the inevitable public expenditure costs as more people rise. But um, 
it, this ties in with the fiscal evidence I was offering you at it's a very tough environment for restraining public spending when you've got um, aging populations now I have presented so far a rather uh, sort of grainy picture of the challenges facing Europe uh, and it's easy to get depressed by looking at these challenges facing Europe how does it compare with the challenges facing the rest of the world and my um, argument is always that I think the best, the best uh, response to the people who are most pessimistic about Europe is to say we are not alone in facing these challenges uh, I'm a politician and there was a fantastic American cartoon once which showed um, uh, which reported an American congressman who was being attacked for using negative campaigning who said you might not like negative campaigning but at least it's honest and the, uh, this is the challenge that at least Europe could look and point the finger at all the other parts of the world and draw attention to the fact that just about every significant part of the world faces its own demographic challenges. Demographics is never stable. Countries are endlessly having to adjust. And particularly they adjust to this extraordinary period when you first of all have a baby boom that gives your economy a surge as the baby boomers are of their peak potential and are all of working age, it gives you a temporary surge. And then, of course, um, as they get older, with a smaller cohort behind them, you have then to face the tailwinds. And so I'm going to take you on a quick tour now through the rest of the world, focusing on the timing of the uh, baby booms in the kind of Mexican wave as the baby booms get around the world. And very simply, you can think of it like this. Those fascist nations had their baby booms in the 1930s. They had pro-natalist policies and economic revival, which is now why we now worry and always talk about the aging populations of Italy or Japan. They had very successful pro-natalist policies in the 1930s, so their aging happened first. Then, by and large, the the victors of the Second World War had their baby booms after the war. So you then look at the US, Britain, having their baby booms in the post-war period. There's no authoritative definition. I, view, I would define Britain's baby boom as 1945 to 65, which is roughly America's as well. Then the, then the sort of drive of the of baby booms moves on. China, Ireland having theirs later. And now there's a baby boom going on in parts of Africa and East Asia. And you should think that these are baby booms as, first of all, a kind of put on the accelerator as your economy goes through the sweet spot of having large numbers of workers, not many pensioners, not many young dependents, and then it becomes, you take your foot off the accelerator and it becomes a break as the baby booms grow old. But look at the scale of the baby boom now underway in Africa. Um, these are the UN population forecasts. Um, I was, uh, they were in a paper of David Coleman's I was discussing with him the other day. It's quite an interesting you, you, you tend to think when you look at these figures, well, there never will be 187 million people in the Congo. But then you have to think it requires quite a rapid adjustment or really quite an appalling human tragedy for the Congo not to go for something like this. This is what um, these kind of surges in population are what you get with baby booms, with uh, modest improvements in healthcare, with shifts towards. Um, modest improvements in growth rate. So you've got around Africa some quite extraordinary demographic surges going on. And at the other side, the people at the, who are, whose populations are now um, 
as I say, especially those countries of the 1930s, you've usually got some very dramatic demographic contractions now forecast um, in countries like Russia and Japan. So the composition of the world's nation states, if you look at the UN's fascinating population forecast they produce every two years, is changing. And the CSIS, on whose Global, Global Aging Commission I sat, you are the, at the LSA, you're the people who think about international relations and international strategy, but it's fascinating. In 1950, when the Western political and economic institutions were being created, of the world's 12 most populous countries, I think seven were Western nations. Even some of the, some Western European countries. France is one of the world's most populous 12 nations. By 2000, we're down to the US, China, Germany in the world's most populous 12 countries nations. By 2050, the US is still there, but all other currently advanced Western countries have disappeared from the list of the world's most populous 12 nations. So we are, that must shift the way in which uh, power relationships function. Um, at the same time, also, their median ages are changing fast. Uh, and I think median age is a fascinating indicator of, the, of, the, uh, of, a, of a society. And you will see, I think the two that I would draw attention to there are, first of all, China. What you will see is that um, China, by 2050, is an older country than the US. The demographic challenge facing China being so dramatic. And uh, although we all hope that Afghanistan reaches um, some kind of stability, uh, uh, again, I owe this insight to the uh, CSIS and the CIA were very interested in this type of analysis. Uh, if you, uh, uh, let me give you a short list of the world's youngest countries. Uh, Yemen, Palestine, Somalia, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. The world's youngest countries, I think of the world's uh, 20 youngest countries, 15 have had civil war or invasion in the past decade. If you've got the middle person in your society aged 16, Afghanistan being one of the world's three or four youngest countries at the moment, if the middle person in your country is aged 16, it is quite hard to maintain what we would recognize as economic and political stability. So these, um, and the, some of the historians have applied this retrospectively. Um, the argument, uh, Russia's median age was incredibly low in the early 20th century. France was actually having a mini baby boom pre-1789. So it does look as if these baby booms that bring down median age so dramatically are societies where it's very hard to maintain what we would recognize as conventional political and social order. And um, so one of the reasons why there are all these people um, uh, who are uh, engaged in such disruptive and threatening activities, these countries have just got very large numbers of very young people indeed. Uh, now, um, I think we will, I will click on through some of these slides because uh, just let me now conclude with my kind of summary of where the other advanced Western countries are. So if I'm a European foreign minister and I'm at some international gathering where people are telling me that Europe is in a, faces a hopeless demographic challenge, the, the foreign ministers from the other countries have been reading one of those US airport books on their way over and they think we are toast. What do you answer? 
you respond by looking them in the eye and telling them about the demographic challenges their country faces. Japan uh, faces one of the most dramatic falls in population of any advanced economy. Um, and they have this very unusual combination. They have no, their birth rate is very low, about 1.2, 1.3, because they still have quite traditional roles for women. Um, more than half of Japanese pensioners live with their children. So they've got low birth rates with large obligations for informal care. And at the same time, um, a very narrow ethnic idea of what it is to be Japanese, a great reluctance to permit any large-scale immigration. They have found, tracked down an obscure clan in Mongolia who they experts have pronounced to be Japanese ethnically, so they're going to be allowed to come into Japan. But essentially, they are not willing to tolerate and immigrate the obvious immigrant solution. Their solution is robots. And it, when you go to Japan, one of their industrial specialities is robot technology, and their view is a lot of the services that we're familiar with people dividing, delivering currently, will be delivered by robots in the future. And if you look at what Sony is preparing, I'll have a modest bet with you that within 10 years, when you, if and when you go to Japan, you will be served in a restaurant by a robot waiter or waitress. You will find that the, some of the care, physical care delivered in Japanese <coughs> nursing homes is delivered by robots. This is their economic and social strategy, and it's their, one of their strengths. They're only rivaled by California already. I don't know whether it's going to work or not, but when you talk to quite senior people in Japan, they look at you with a straight face, and this is what they're going to do. They are going to make the kit that will maintain their elderly population. Um, China is uh, China has this extraordinary challenge of, as the democracies say, growing old before it grows rich. And they have, their population aging over the next 40 years is very dramatic, and we don't know how they're going to adjust to it. But one of the reasons for this sort of dash for growth in China is to try to build up some wealth before this, before this happens. And they've got a very big increase in the elderly share of the population. And they have... Um, very serious pension challenges. Uh, they don't have sufficiently good protected property rights for funded pensions to work. They've tried to set up funded pension schemes, sponsored often by regional governments, and the regional government, on at least one occasion when it gets into fiscal difficulty, simply extracts the money from the pension scheme. So operating a funded pension model when you don't have a law of contract and independent judiciary is quite hard to do. So they rely, in, uh, in their traditional way, on family transfers, where they, have a, they did have a stable model in which, essentially, your uh, son is obliged to maintain you, and your daughter maintains the family that she joins when she marries. Um, and that is the informal Chinese pension care model. Then you have the arrival of modern birth technologies and the ability to select your child and you have the one child policy. And the interaction of the one child policy and easy access to prenatal screening and abortion has led to a dramatic change in the gender composition of the Chinese population where they're now up to approximately 125 men to every 100 women. So they're pension rules drive you to wish to have a son rather than a daughter. Being a, if, you, uh, if you're not going to be maintained by a daughter and you have a one-child policy, it is a massive financial risk for your family. So China has got an, 
a very unusual gender experiment going on, a massive surpluses of men relative to women. It reminds me of when I was at university, and it's not a, high, a model that one would recommend. So that's, I think, going to be a fascinating, it's an unusual, I think unprecedented um, demographic experiment going on in China, to some extent India, and how they manage that will be a challenge. Now, the U.S. has got a very, uh, on most conventional measures, just about the best, most favorable demographics of any advanced economy, combination of quite a high birth rate and high rates of immigration, leading to the working age population growing, and whereas the EU's, therefore the EU's, the European economy is a share of the world economy, on virtually any plausible demographic estimate shrinks from about 22% now to 10% or less by 2050. America's share of world GDP remains quite high, um, and indeed there are some scenarios where um, it grows uh, even more. So America's got quite good demographics, and that's what... Oh, sorry, 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 yes, quite right. Yes, America's got quite good demographics. Here are the figures, thank you, Boris. Here are the figures. Um, America's got quite good demographics, but let me give you two buts. It's quite interesting, the composition of the birth rate. Um, you think, why has America got a higher demographic uh, why, uh, than Europe? Uh, a higher birth rate than Europe when you might think it had a similar composition. The next explanation appears to be that anguished liberals don't have many babies if they're living in Europe or they're living in America. Um, the people who are having the babies in the US are essentially people who have very strong religious beliefs. Um, religious people are having 40% more children than secular. So it looks as if higher levels of religious practice in America explains their uh, the WASP population, if I can put it like that, having a higher birth rate than um, similar populations in Europe. Uh, religious conservatives, as you can see, having particularly high birth rates. And um, they are, incidentally, I should add, also they're happier. They report very high levels of happiness. Extremists report very high levels of happiness. So these people who are happy, optimistic, strong religious believers also have large numbers of children. Um, that looks to be one of the drivers of the America's higher birth rate. So it's a change in the composition of the US population between religious belief and non-belief. Um, and although those Americans who say, and let me put it rather crudely, those Americans who say, we in America can absorb our Hispanics more easily than you in Europe can absorb Muslims, so their essential argument is that taking people in from Mexico it, there's a less of a cultural divide than taking people in from, say, North America. Uh, I think that the, that's a, quite a complacent view of the world, and we, we may be living through a fascinating test of that model, which is the Californian fiscal crisis. The Californian fiscal, fiscal crisis has got some deep ethnic and also generational uh, fissures behind it. Essentially, our aging white Anglo-Saxon property owners going to pay taxes to pay for an education for young Hispanic migrant workers. And the evidence so far in California is they're extremely reluctant to make that fiscal transfer. So the bridging this divide is not straightforward for America either, even though when you start superficially, the demographics look better.
Um, well, I think that uh, I have now sort of gone on too long. I'm going to end with a shameless plug for a book that I've just finished writing, which is of which has got a kind some demographics backed behind it. Uh, it appears in February next year, The Pinch, How the Baby Boomers Have Taken Their Children's Future and Why They Should Give It Back, which is my analysis, which is an attempt to make sense both of the British, British political and economic scene and some wider political issues by looking at them from the perspective of the changing cohort composition of Britain and the wider world. Out, I hope, hope you'll be able to find it in the LSE bookshop in February. And I think Morris has invited me. I think I'm coming back to the LSE to give a lecture broadly around those themes in February of next year. Thank you very much indeed. questions now, um, and I'd like to throw it open um, to the floor. One thing, if I may, just, just kick off by asking, you, um, you didn't talk about East, I mean, you talked about Russia and a bit Southern Europe, the Central and Eastern European problem. Is there, do you have any sense of what kind of factors may be operating there to keep their, to depress their birth rates uh, so much? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, uh, I could equally... There. Um, one could easily, those figures for Southern Europe, they're very similar figures or even worse figures for Eastern Europe. And as to why that should be, the massive economic and social disruption with the collapse of the Soviet bloc did lower the birth rate very dramatically. Uh, I would have expected the birth rate to be recovering. Uh, and there were, in some parts of Eastern Europe, evidence of a bit of recovery, but now, of course, they're particularly badly hit by the financial crisis. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there are other people in this room who will have thought about it more than I have, but, but a combination of the of massive political disruption 20 years ago and uncertainty about your employment and your whole future, that's bad for birth rates. And then this second bout of uncertainty, just when they're recovering, has been a very heavy further blow. Okay, who'd like to um, put a question? to Ian Stewart and then Charles Jenkins and Lorenzo. Um, in, in your um, work, did you... Could you, you say who you any, are as, as well? Yeah, 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 Ian Stewart from uh, Deloitte. Um, in, in your work, did you come across any encouraging historical precedents for countries dealing with big changes in, in, in the size of their population? I mean, is there, is there anything, any, any kind of lessons from history which offer in, encouragement in, in what looks like a a rather fleet picture for, for, for populations. Well, of course, we always, by and large, one gets to the other side. Things adjust, um, and retirement ages will adjust. Uh, pay, payments between workers and non-workers will adjust. Um, some, some parts of the world may be left with very high proportions of ageing populations, and they may be, find it hard to manage, but young people may move to the places where there are other young people and they don't have to pay the costs of caring for elderly people. So various things are just... I have to say, in general, the US has managed this quite well. In terms of riding the, 
the demographic surge, incorporating successive waves of immigration, maintaining a birth rate, um, 20th century USA is quite good because they both got a very strong sort of constitutional and financial framework, and at the same time, but, un but unusually independent of any kind of ethnic basis. It was a, it was something that you could buy into. Uh, from wherever in the world you came. So historically, the US, I think, has been quite good at it. Um, but uh, the, as I said, even in the US, the, it looks as if absorbing people from Latin America is more of a challenge than absorbing the immigrants who came over by boat in their millions from Italy or Jewish people fleeing pogroms or whatever in the 20th century or indeed Brits and Irish in the, in the 18th and 19th. Charles Jenkins. Uh, Germany and the Netherlands are, are actually going to raise their retirement ages above 65. Um, do, do you think that's uh, sort of the best way of dealing with it or could there be other sort of more flexible ways in which you, you do retire but encourage you to go on working part-time or, or something like that? Um, raising pension ages and retirement ages has to be part of it. Um, it's not the whole, whole answer, but the, it's, a, it's a precondition for reform. Uh, there, is a, there is a problem, though, which is not sort of confronted, I think, as often as it should be, which is that the, the difference between the macro argument for an economy as a whole, in, which is clearly very strongly for people to work later and build up their pension entitlements later, and the micro-argument for a particular organisation, where for particular organisations, reform and renewal may involve um, uh, removing older employees. Italian university reform, the Italians worry about the quality of their universities, they're trying to open them up and get them more dynamic. When I was last in Italy, one of their most radical proposals for reforming Italian universities was to introduce a retirement age of 65 so that they could remove their older professors. Whenever governments in Britain have sat and looked at what should happen to retirement ages here, they, when the, it's when the ministers think, does that mean all the permanent secretaries will be 67? That they, they, and they look at it not as a macro issue, but a micro issue for their organisation that they worry. Now, America has got through this better than Europe. Uh, America did this reform earlier under Reagan. And America was able to get through it in a way we can't in Europe because the com sorry, let me, let me, I've missed out a stage in the argument. And the problem for the, for the organization is once you have retirement ages exist by an exemption in labor market regulation from unfair dismissal. That's what a retirement age is legally. It's saying you can get rid of someone age 65 and they can't sue you for unfair dismissal. So it takes the, a retirement age really takes the form of an exemption from unfair dismissal legislation for people above a certain age. Which put like that is quite an offensive concept in today's non-discriminatory culture. So getting rid of retirement ages involves removing that exemption for sacking people when they've reached a certain age. That means every older worker, when you ask him or she, 
her to go can potentially sue you for unfair dismissal. Which means that you need a lot of paperwork to show that they can't do the job. And that in turn raises two issues. First of all, it means that instead of saying to the person, here's your gold watch, you've done a fantastic 30 years service for the company, it's so sorry that you've reached retirement age, nothing to do with me old chap, in fact I wish these bloody stupid rules had gone, but anyway there we are, you're 65 and I'm so frustrating but goodbye and thank you so much. In future, it has to take the form of, we have been recording your performance over the past three years, and as you grow older, we have observed that your performance is below that of other people in your group or organisation. We've got the legal evidence which would enable us to win an unfair dismissal case, so sadly, you have to retire. Unless you've got that evidence, unless they know you've got that evidence, you will not in reality be able to get someone to go if they don't wish to go, which does rather change the nature of retirement. So that's the first issue when you start thinking about how this works. The second issue is an EU issue, which is they could do it in America because compensation for unfair dismissal is relatively modest in the US. So it's not too big a legal risk for a company to run. EU labor market regulations fix no upper limit to unfair dismissal comp uh, compensation for EU workers who are dismissed. So one of the barriers to these reforms in Europe is that unfair dismissal cases are potentially very expensive indeed for employers, and so they're very risky. It's hard for us. So people look and say, well, why can't we just do what the US does? It's within a different framework of, of EU labour market law, and that, that means that when, as and when you do start raising retirement ages in Europe, it's going to, it does create much trickier challenges for individual organisations. And it's very frustrating. I said to Adair Turner, this was one of the missing chapters of his report. There were several missing chapters, and this was one. He talks in general terms about raising pension age and more older people working. He didn't really engage with the microeconomics of it. It's a microeconomic, it's an obvious macroeconomic solution. But most of the real problems in doing it are microeconomic problems. Um, Lorenzo and then Nada. Sorry, if you could pass the, the gentleman there in the maroon, in the maroon top. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Um, Lorenzo Biondialis, alumnus and uh, freelance journalist. Uh, and I'm from Italy. Um, I, I, and you're here. <laughs> you exist. <laughs> um, I, well, my question is quite similar to the previous ones, and it's about policies and what to do. Um, seems like in, in, in Italy we got to a couple of, of deadlocks uh, on the policy side. One is that when a government tries to raise the, um, uh, the retirement age, uh, a revolution starts. Uh, of course, because the government starts lose, uh, losing vo uh, voters, because uh, usually uh, people in the retirement, re retirement age can vote. And the second reason is that young people um, see that uh, if older people can stay in their place for much longer, they will never get an actual place till they are 30 or 35. And then, of course, they will stay at their parents' house till they are 35. And so we get into a, a vicious circle. And the second problem is that when, you try, when, when a government tries to do some uh, policy to um, favor families and, um, and children, you get to the, to, the, uh, to the critic that they are either trying to do a, a fascist uh, reform mm -hmm. or that they are trying to do um, some kind of Christian Democrat reform that is, fa is favoring the traditional um, uh, model of family instead of 
favoring more open families. So how do you deal with that? Um, well, I, I agree it's very tricky. I mean, I, as I said, I, I personally think that one of the most liberating things for young people is to be able to access credit. And the difficulty of accessing credit is, is a challenge. And the opening up the ownership of Italian financial institutions so that normal Western banks that do lend money to younger people could access could, be, could access the Italian retail market, um, I think would be a very important first thing. When they had that great debate about there was a foreign bid for a big Italian retail bank, wasn't there? I just thought the obvious way for an Italian finance minister to win this argument is it's going to help young people uh, break free of the elderly households in which they're living. Um, the, the, the second thing is um, that Italy is going to have to confront the you know, the North African migration challenge. And it is a social choice, and it's a legitimate social choice, but these, these kind of policies, I mean, nature abhors a vacuum, and, the, uh, uh, and, and, I think, and when you look at the youthful populations of North Africa, you can see, in the absence of domestic reform, the the obvious sort of demographic adjustment that Italy faces. And it's a perfectly reasonable choice, in a way, to make that that's going to be your, your, your demographic future. And it seems to be the one that implicitly is being taken by, by Italy now. And uh, the trouble is that all the sort of Mussolini fascist stuff just make, does make this a more tricky discussion in Italy still. You're absolutely right. The associations are terrible, and it's... Um, and it, it is, does make it very delicate territory. But I think that somehow one can manage it. That is a, it is a legitimate issue for a nation to have about its future. Good evening. Uh, I'm Nadia Kowalczykova, master's student at the European Institute. I would like to ask you, we are concerned in the pension systems and changes in that, but what about the migration, as you have mentioned? Um, how, how, how do you see the impact of... Uh, of more regulatory, more restrictive uh, European policies, or migration, immigration policies, and the need to actually uh, make the population younger uh, helping by, you know, like would be helped by this uh, immigration of the, of, the, of the young people from abroad. How, how does it converge together, this need and actual mm. policy application de facto mm. uh, at the European level? Thank you. Yeah. Well, you're right. And in fact, oddly enough, my, my, in my day job of shadowing universities and skills, I see this directly, um, these, these pressure points. And that is the government, is it introduces and tightens up its point-based system for immigration controls here, has to define activities where people will, where foreign workers will be permitted to come in, where what, with the foreign skills that we are, so quotes, short of, and where foreign immigrants will be allowed to come in and work, and the ones which we're not short of, and which they will not be able to come in and work. And a classic example is being a nursing assistant in a care home. British care homes have become dependent on recruiting, often for really quite basic tasks in British care homes, nurses from abroad. So you recruit, um, and uh, so, you, so British care homes are operated in reality or are staffed by nurses from the Philippines, for example, and elsewhere. In the last year, 
the points-based system has said it is no longer, they will no longer permit people to come into the country uh, from outside the EU to work as care home assistants. They're saying we don't, that should be something that we can do from people who are in Britain from around the EU. The care homes are saying we can't, for them, that in turn has a knock-on effect. First of all, the cost of paying people to work in care homes rises, and local authorities who finance most care home places face a fiscal issue. They say there's a, you have a, the first row is the care homes asking for increases in fees, and the local authorities saying we can't afford it. And the second thing you get is a training and skills crisis for care home workers. And I visited last week or the week before a new, uh, a new training facility in Birmingham, which was taking young people who are currently unemployed and who had expressed an interest in becoming care home workers and was giving them the 10 weeks basic training they needed in um, hygiene, uh, safe lifting, fire safety, to enable them to get jobs as care home assistants. Um, they were, they were, uh, they were uh, uh, advertising around and recruiting young neets and young unemployed people. And there were some of them who had, for example, elderly relatives they'd been caring for informally who were ready to do this. Um, and they were playing, and they were, had made a successful business out of plugging what had become a very serious gap in the British labour market. And there is a very odd mismatch. In a way, our skills policy should be determined by the categories that we do or do not permit to come in through our work permit and points-based system. But nobody seems, I do not detect any signs of advanced planning where someone said we better, we're about to pull down the shutters on care home workers. Has anybody thought about whether we ought to perhaps train a few more care home workers domestically? What you got was a crisis and now you've got some entrepreneurial types stepping in with not much particular public policy assistance to try to plug a gap that's been created. Now that kind of process, I suspect, will go on around Europe. And remember, I mean, it's another separate complicated debate, but in Britain we have had this unusual combination of very high rates of inward immigration whilst at the same time we did have high rates of youth unemployment. So there are young people out there who could do the jobs, but nobody particularly seems to have made an effort to recruit them, for example, to be care home assistants until recently. The recruitment was largely done abroad. And it's fascinating to see the pro the, that, that industrial sector slowly adjusting to a different model of the labour market. Who else would like to ask a question? Yes. Mr. Tony Smith, I'm a baby boomer, um, semi-retired, and enjoying every minute of it. Um, David, you referred to uh, the population increase in uh, Africa. I'm just wondering if there's any sort of indication that uh, there's going to be an economic growth that's going to be commensurate with that increasing population to sustain that population. And if not, is uh, it likely that there's going to be mass population movement? And if so, to where? Well. You, it's a, that's one of the big international challenges, isn't it? The, what Africa is going through now is what Asia had about 20 or 30 years ago. And with some exceptions, Asia took their demographic 
bonus, that demographic sweet spot of having large numbers of young workers, not many pensioners, and then a fall in the birth rates, not many dependents coming on behind. Um, they took that opportunity to change the structure of those economies and go on a birth, on, on an economic surge. It would be fantastic if African countries took the opportunity. Uh, some will, some won't. I mean, I should report, oddly enough, this afternoon I had a meeting with a guy running an international university company who was about to open a commercial university in Uganda. Uh, by and large, it's got the rule of law. You can move money in and out of the country. It's one of the countries, I think it was on my chart, with a very big increase in the birth rate. They need more skilled workers. He's worked out that locating a profit-making university in Kampala is a good option, and he wanted to come around and tell me what he was thinking of and why he was doing it. And although he wasn't interested in the demographics, he'd absolutely tied in with this sort of challenge. And I think you may, optimistically about Africa, you can think that there may be countries like Uganda that rise to that challenge. There are others which clearly are finding the disruptive effects too great, and one does worry about them. Uh, and for that, it's civil war, bloodshed, um, or, uh, it's, it could be grim. But there are, as I say, there are, I believe there will be places in Africa that, that, that can rise to the challenge, and I, the more countries that do so, the better. Thank you. Who else would like to ask a question? Um, Philippe Lan, David Charles. Philippe Lan, French Embassy. Um, you, you mentioned... Um, uh, India and China. Have you got some information about South America and Brazil in particular? Um, yes, I don't know so, so much about them. I mean, uh, no, I, I'm, Brazil is going through a similar surge in its population. Uh, but I'm afraid I don't have a chart about Brazil and wouldn't like to add much more to that. I mean, and I've no, I'm, I'm sadly, I'm afraid, I don't think I should speculate on a country I sadly know, know very little about. David Chalmers. David Chalmers, I just wondered how these things, the remittance mm. culture might play out. I just don't know anything about it because remittances often are transfers from young to old. And of course, when one talks about migration, one has increasingly diasporic communities in the sense I'm married to an Argentinian woman but I might contribute to the economy in Argentina at the moment. That might or would not be sort of outflows from the EU to non-EU states. That might change. I just wondered where that might figure in your argument if at all. Um, yes, the there are different, with the remit, oddly enough, I mean, there is, and this is part of what I've been writing in the book about, in general, informal financial flows are from old to young. Flows from young to old are more the explicit flows of the welfare state. Uh, and I, there must, these breakdowns must exist. There is a it's an interesting question, to what extent remittances are indeed for elderly parents, that must be some of it, to what extent they are for siblings, paying for the education of nephews and nieces, uh, and my instinct, and I'm ha happy to be corrected by the evidence, but my instinct is that quite a lot of remittances may be, if we, from what we see about 
historic and international patterns of informal flows, uh, they are in general downwards in the age scale. Um, now, the uh, exchange rate, of course, has an effect. For, for us in Britain, I think one of the reasons why we may see in this great debate about whether the immigrants who arrived in, ten years ago, in the last 10 years go back home or not, it may well be that the fall in the pound, lowering the value of the remittances that they can make, does lead some of them to go back to where they uh, go back to Poland or wherever they came from because the value of what they can send home falls significantly. Um, they may also have been sort of hoping to sort of buy a place back home where they came from and that, that sort of asset transfer may be harder. So what I would suspect for Britain is some return of immigrants back abroad. Um, then there is then the question of the elderly British who left to go and live in France or Spain who may have been dependent on payments denominated in sterling that they used to convert into euros at a strong rate and who cashed in on the British house price boom to buy a place that seemed much cheaper. And they may find for them financial pressures are shifting and also access to healthcare starts becoming more of an issue. So my suspicion is that for Britain at least, which is the only reason that I, you would expect these net flows to reverse. I could imagine people who thought they were had emigrated coming back from the Costa Brava and the south of France, and people who might have thought they had immigrated um, deciding not to stay after all. Who knows? David, can I ask you a question just on uh, sticks and carrots from the state? Um, you suggested that they didn't appear to work very much, though that there may be, there may be some unintended consequences of tax credits that, that you mentioned. Um, if you look at the last 30 odd years, comparing Britain and France, very similar birth rates, France stands mm. slightly higher than Britain. Uh, a policy in France under the Fifth Republic, from de Gaulle, uh, to strongly encourage um, children, women to have uh, babies, both reflected in high level of family allowances and generous provisions for creches and childcare. Now, maybe the family allowances, uh, in light of what you said about making it possible to combine work um, and childcare, one would have expected that France, uh, with extensive creche arrangements um, enabling women to work and combine childcare, uh, would have had more impact on the birth rate. And yet it was more or less the same as Britain's with about the meanest, meanest system in Western Europe of, of, of child support. I just wondered if, if you can sort of shed any light there. It would seem as though there's absolutely no impact. Well, I, I think the French birth rate has been quite high. I think the, and your list uh, helps to explain it, the... So I think the interesting question is why the British birth rate has been quite high this decade. I certainly wasn't expecting the surge in the birth rate that we've had. Uh, and I would argue that there are different ways in which you can make it easier to combine work and, um, uh, and raising kids. There is indeed the kind of French-Swedish model, which is large amount of state-provided childcare. In Britain, you can have such a flexible labour market with the hours that people work varying so much, the access to the childcare being so flexible, um, quite historically quite a large amount of fairly unregulated 
um, private provision of childcare. In other words, you can, you may or may not think it's best for long-term child development, but you can. I would say Britain ended up with quite a lot of childcare. It's just it wasn't delivered through a kind of organised public sector system, but it was clearly much more... It was much easier to combine working and having your kids cared for than it would be in Italy or Japan or, or Germany. So we did get quite a lot of childcare in the way. And we had a, a benefit system that did not, that encouraged early family formation. Uh, well, a, a benefit system and a labour market, let's try to put that more clearly. If you have a relatively lightly regulated labour market, young people can get into jobs earlier. So we had relatively high rates of youth employment, which is a good precursor for having kids. Whereas, remember, on the continent, levels of um, youth employment, the trends have changed in the last few years, but for a long time, levels of youth unemployment, youth unemployment was higher than in Britain. Uh, so that was um, another factor. And also, the benefit system encouraged you to get out of the household. There was not much. There was no. There was no reward in the benefit system for staying with your parents when you're post 18. Uh, in Germany, your parents can, I think, carry on getting financial support in respect of you until you're 26, 27. Something similar in Italy, which, when you say in Britain, people find amazing that there is a. So the benefit system assumes continuing levels of financial dependence on your children for much longer. The British model, if you combine quite a flexible labour market and no recognition of a family dependency post the age of 18, that gets you out into a new household. And that has been historically the British model. Um, and that, I think, is one that is also quite good for birthright. Well, David, we're going to sadly have to bring things to a close. I wonder whether you would just say in summary, returning to our kind of notional Europe uh, theme, and I'm delighted that you've placed Europe on the global canvas. But uh, we say in broad terms, are you, are you an optimist or, or a pessimist about uh, Europe's ability uh, to adapt to the kind of challenges you talked about, or are you, are you a seriously worried man? Should we, um, should we be well, worried? I, I mean, things do all adjust in the end. Uh, I, I think uh, things will adjust in the end. Um, the, the question is... Uh, the balance between adjustment by factors such as immigration, which I think will be a very powerful force along the southern Mediterranean, and, and uh, but, uh, higher people working when they're older, uh, very high. I think that some of the Japanese stuff will happen here as well. Investment, very high levels of capital investment in kit to enable you to carry on functioning and enjoying a high quality life even when there aren't many young people around. I think that, that's where. Japan has actually got a market niche which will drive their um, economy in the future. I think that I can see European countries in Europe going down the same route. Uh, so I, I, we will. The, you, it is a, in, and in some ways, this part of the demographic transition, adjusting for the baby boomers being old, I think it's any worse than the first half of it, which is adjusting to have large numbers of young people. And for that, you get the Grosvenor Square riots. You get turbulence, you get, um, uh, uh, you get also some economic growth. And having ridden that particular tide halfway, we've just got to ride the other half. And the main thing is, which is, I'm going to be shameless again, the plug of my book, the main thing is the boomers as they get older have to be willing to pass power 
and resources to the younger generation. If the baby boomers use the fact that they are a large generation, even as we get into our old age, that would be the nightmare scenario when you get to a kind of generational warfare. So the boomers have to be willing to provide opportunities for the younger generation coming up behind. That's the central argument to the book. Well, uh, we have an, uh, an extraordinary concentration of young people here in a, a very small space at the school, some 9,000 odd. Uh, and we haven't had any riots since 1968, thank God. Yep. Uh, suggests that you can marry large numbers of young people with social stability. Long may that last. Um, the 68 riots came 21 years after the baby boom peak of 1947. The, 68, the riots in the mid-60s were correlated with the baby boom peak of 20 years earlier. That's sorry, a bit of a demographic determinant. That seems to me the ob there was a surge of young people then. Well, it's been an absolutely fascinating hour and a half, uh, David. Thank you very, very much. Um, so many uh, observation insights, which I must say were, all, were entirely new to me. Um, and uh, we look forward uh, in a more high-tech way uh, to welcoming you in, uh, in February uh, for, for more of your thoughts on related themes. And thank you once again. Always.